you want to find your place in your Bible at the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, the Gospel of Mark uh, chapter 5, and I want to tell you the story of a woman today that uh, is found here in this fifth chapter of Mark's Gospel. Uh, This is an interesting chapter in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, There are actually three stories that are related to us in this chapter. One of those is a story of a demoniac that you find at the first part of this chapter. Then you find a story of a man whose daughter is dying and will die in the middle of the chapter and then sort of sandwiched in, sort of interrupting the story of the daughter who is dying, you have a story of a diseased woman who comes and approaches Jesus. And all three of these stories are intended in Mark's gospel to teach us the power of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has power over the demons. He has power over disease, and he even has power over death. You may remember the first story that's found in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. It's the story of the demoniac. He was possessed not by one demon, but by a legion of demons. His conduct was very bizarre. Uh, He had strength that was beyond that of human ability. And sometimes when I read this story, I stop and think to myself things that are going on in our own community, our own society, in our own world. And I recognize that there is such a thing as mental illness, and some people are battling with mental illness, but some things can only be explained by the demonic. They are demonically induced. And here is a case in the opening chapter, uh, opening uh, verses of chapter 5, where you find a man who is demonically induced in this very bizarre behavior. Well, Jesus travels across the Sea of Galilee to the southwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He goes a little bit further inland to the city of Gadara. Gadara is one of 10 cities that's called the Decapolis. And in the city of Gadara, he meets this demoniac. When he does so, he ultimately casts the demons, this legion of demons, out of this man. But the demons don't just want to go out of this man. They want to have somewhere to go. And so Jesus sees this herd of pigs and sends these demons into the pigs. And the pigs then do that which is bizarre. They run down the hill. They run into the water. They drown themselves in the water. And you find this man now sitting in his right mind. He's clothed. Uh, what had been so bizarre has all gone away because he's been relieved. He's been, uh, he's been delivered from the demonic oppression, the demonic possession that he's experienced. And you would think that the people of Gadara would want to know more about Jesus. They would want to know and have the presence of Jesus with them. But instead, what they're thinking about is not the presence of Jesus or the power of Jesus. They're thinking about their prophets. They just lost what, 2,000 pigs that ran down this hill and into the water and drowned themselves. They just lost their prophet. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, get out of our area. Leave our area, please, as quickly as possible. We don't want you here. Because they were more concerned with their prophets than they were with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus gets in a boat. He goes back across the other side of the Sea of Galilee He goes probably to the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, likely to the city of Caesarea. Caesarea was his hometown. It was his home base. It was the center of his ministry. Many of the miracles that you see that Jesus performs take place somewhere around the Sea of Galilee. 
He has a Galilean ministry. He goes to Judea, obviously, to Jerusalem. He performs miracles there as well. But many of the miracles of Jesus are performed down here around the Sea of Galilee. And likely, when he travels back across the sea, he comes back to his home base, to the city of Caesarea. When he gets to Caesarea, there's a whole crowd of people waiting on him. The ministry of Jesus is growing in popularity. People are hearing more about him. They're they're learning about the power that he has. They're learning about the miracles that he can perform. They're they're learning about the things that he says that are so different than what the Pharisees and the scribes would have to say. And this crowd gathers around him. Well, pushing through the crowd on this day is a, a man who is the ruler of the synagogue, This is a well-connected man. This is a well-known man. This is probably a wealthy man. And he pushes through the crowd, and he falls down in the presence of Jesus, and he says to Jesus, you've got to come help me. My 12-year-old daughter is dying. She's on her deathbed right now. We've got to go immediately. You've got to come, and you've got to help me. Please come and help me. Jesus has compassion on this man. And with this crowd of people pushing along with him, going along with him, going the distance, whatever it was, wherever the body of Jairus' daughter was laid, this ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, wherever his daughter's body was laid, they begin in that direction, moving that way. Ultimately, they'll get the word that the daughter has died before they get there. And Jesus will go and Jesus will raise her from the dead because Jesus not only has power over the demons, Jesus has power over death, as I've already told you. But in the middle of this story, while they're making their way to where Jairus' daughter, 12-year-old daughter, can be found, is the story where we're going to focus our attention for the next few minutes. And it's the story of a woman. And the contrast between Jairus and this woman are striking as you begin to look at them. One of them is a man, the other is a woman. We've talked about this in previous messages in this series called Simply Jesus, but Oftentimes, women weren't treated with the same respect that they're treated today. It wasn't because of complementarity. It was because they had sinfully come to a place where women were looked at and viewed as more like possession than as co-equals. And the result of that was that they were treated as less than they should have been treated had nothing to do with complementarity, had nothing to do with the order that God had designed in the beginning of time, had nothing to do with that at all. It had to do with the abuse of that complementarity, that complementary way of doing life. One was a man, one was a woman. That's the point. One was well-known. The other is unknown, or at least she's unnamed. One of them we know, the man we know as Jairus. The other we simply know as a certain woman. We don't know what her name is. We have no idea what her name is. Basically, she's unknown in the story. One of them has had 12 years of happiness. Jairus has had 12 years of happiness with his daughter, watching her grow up, seeing all of the changes that were taking place in her life and all of the love that they shared together as father and daughter. But the other had had 12 years of misery. 12 years of utter and absolute misery in her life. And the contrast between these two is striking. Uh, They're juxtaposed in here in this particular story as they're making their way toward Jairus' daughter. And this woman comes into this crowd and stops what's going on for for a few brief moments 
I mean, the juxtaposition of these two stories is intended to draw our attention to the contrasts that are going on in this story. Now, if you're one of those who likes outlines, I'm going to give you the outline of this lady's life because, you know, in a lot of my messages, I bring illustrations with me to help uh, open the windows and bring light in on the truth that I'm trying to present. But this woman herself is the illustration that I want us to focus on for the next few moments. And so if you're one of those who writes down outlines, let me just briefly give you the outline. First, we're going to see her futile search. It's found in verses 25 and 26, her futile search. Then we see her final hope in verse 27, the first part of verse 27. Then we see her fearful pursuit, her fearful pursuit in the second part of verse 27 and verse 28. Then we see her freedom realized in verse 29. And finally, in verse 30 to 34, verses 30 to 34, we see her faithful confession. So we have her futile search, her final hope, her fearful pursuit, her freedom realized, and her faithful confession. And if you didn't get those, I'll repeat them again in a few minutes as we go through this message. But we begin with her futile search. This is the woman who's going to teach us the lessons that we have to learn today. And really, I want you to back up to verse 24, and I want you to listen to the crowd of people that are around Jesus. So Jesus went with him. That's with Jairus, headed toward his daughter who was on a sickbed, who was nearly dead. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. You can see it, can't you? If you've ever seen a professional athlete, if you've ever seen a famous person, and the people are allowed to get close to them. They're surrounded several people deep. There's people in front of them and people beside them, and there's people behind them, and they're all jostling one another to get as close to Jesus as they possibly can, to get up where they can speak to Jesus. Jesus can hear their voices, and they can hear Jesus' voices. And you can imagine this big throng of people, this big crowd of people as they're making their way. And we're introduced in the midst of that crowd to this woman, verse 25. Now, a certain woman, we don't have her name. We don't know anything about her heritage. We don't know anything about her background. We don't know anything about her family, where she was born. Was this her hometown? Had she been living in this hometown for any length of time? We don't know anything about this, this woman. She's just simply called a certain woman, unlike Jairus, who everyone knew. Maybe nobody knew the name of this woman. Certainly Mark, the gospel writer, didn't. He said, now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. I think it's hard for most of us to imagine the difficulty, the physical difficulty that this woman had to endure. 12 years, what's called here a flow of blood, was a hemorrhaging of her body. For 12 long years, she's been hemorrhaging. You, you can imagine that that has to make her somewhat anemic, if not completely anemic. You can imagine the difficulty of having to deal with this every single day of your life and having to plan out your life every single day related to and around this bleeding. You can't possibly imagine, because we don't live in this culture, what it would have been like to be ceremonially unclean because of this bleeding for 12 years of, a life, of her life. She was socially unclean. She was matrimonially unclean. This woman, in every way, was somebody who was isolated. 
You know, all of you medical personnel, you can begin trying to imagine what this illness was, what was causing this hemorrhaging. But the fact of the matter is, she had gone to the doctors of her day, to the best doctors of her day. And while I understand that medicine in that day is rudimentary as it's compared to medicine today, the fact of the matter is they knew certain things that could be done to help people, and they did everything they knew to do in order to help this woman. But nothing was able to assist this woman in the stopping of this hemorrhaging of her body. There's even indication as you read some of the other writings of that period, there's and of the rabbis, there's some indication that some of these doctors used even things that were somewhat superstitious in nature. Once they had exhausted all of the means that they knew to use that were the normal things that they would have used, then they resulted, it resulted in them moving to things that were even somewhat supernatural, some, something superstitious, if you will, in nature. I'm reminded of a, of a cute little story about a young, about a man who was sick and had these symptoms and decided to go to his doctor. And his doctor looked at him and checked him over and prescribed him a medication. He went home, he took the medication for several days, and for several days he didn't get any better. Came back after a few days to see the doctor a second time. The doctor examined him, and sure enough, he had the same symptoms. And this time he gave him a shot and sent him home and said, you know, this will take care of it. And after several days, he still had the same symptoms. And he came back to the doctor a third day and he said, doctor, I've got the same symptoms. What are we going to do? And the doctor looked at him and said, I want you to go home and I want you to take a nice warm bath. I want you to soak in that warm weather. Then I want you to get up and I want you to open all of the windows of the house and let that cold breeze come blowing across your body throughout that house. And he stopped the doctor and said, doc, might that cause me to have pneumonia? The doctor looked at him and says, yeah, it'll cause you to have pneumonia, and that I can cure. And that I can cure. And there must have been some physicians that looked at this woman and said, let's try this and let's try that, and if that doesn't work, let's try something that, you know, rather superstitious by nature, and if, you know, let's see if we can find something that works. You understand that this disease had sapped her of her strength. It had deprived her of motherhood. It had embarrassed her socially. It had ostracized her from others. You talk about a lockdown. You talk about uh, you know, isolation. It had ostracized her from others. Uh, it had barred her from worship. It had emptied her resources. Everything she had had been spent on trying to get the help she need, needed. And wouldn't you have done the same thing? I mean, we do that today, don't we? We get one opinion, we get a second opinion. If we don't like that one, we get a third opinion. We're always looking for somebody that can help us. And this woman was looking for somebody that could help her. But the end of verse 26 is so, is so revealing. But she grew worse. She grew worse. You can imagine what she was feeling in these moments of her life. There had to be a sense of hopelessness that overcame her. She certainly couldn't have lived this way for the rest of her life. Twelve years was long enough. How long could she have gone on with this hemorrhaging? How long could she have continued in this condition? And the more she tried to find help from the various people, the more she realized that there wasn't anything that these doctors could do. As a matter of fact, I would tell you this. This story is repeated in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke. And there's an interesting detail in the Gospel of Luke. Luke, who you know is a medical doctor, right? You know Luke's a medical doctor? 
Luke says about this woman that her disease was incurable. This is the medical man of that day who had, would have had some of the best knowledge of that day. Rudimentary as compared to today, I understand, but would have had some of the best knowledge about medicine of that day. And the gospel writer, Dr. Luke, says that this woman's circumstances, this woman's health condition was incurable. There was nothing that they knew to do. She had suffered at the hands of doctors. She had suffered in the finances she had spent, and she only got worse. She was moving inevitably toward her death, her futile search, looking for answers. Maybe today you're watching me, or maybe today you're sitting in this auditorium, and you have a sense of hopelessness. You have a sense of helplessness. It's as if you've come to the end of the, that proverbial rope and you tied a knot and you've been hanging on, but even the knot is becoming untied and you feel like you're about to fall off into this abyss beneath you, not the abyss of hell, but the abyss of some great problem from which you will never escape for the rest of your life. And there's a sense of that kind of hopelessness that's settling in over you. You've tried everything. You've sought everywhere. You spent as much as you have looking for the answers, but you can't find the answer. There's an emptiness. There's a discouragement. There's even a depression that's settling in over you because you don't know where to go next. That's how this woman must have felt. Put yourself for a moment in her shoes. You know, in our daily Bible reading, one of our pastors in our podcast that goes on Monday before the daily Bible reading, so you can listen to it, and then we sort of give you an outlay of of what to look for while you're reading through the different texts of Scripture. One of our, our pastors, when asked the question, you know, what are some of the things that you do to read the Bible and make it come alive? He said, I try to put myself in the text. I try to put myself in the text. Take a moment and try to put yourself in the text with this woman. Try to imagine a little bit of how it would have felt for this woman to have had this sense of hopelessness and this sense of helplessness that was surrounding her. And that brings us to the second, the second point of this message, her final hope. It says in verse 27, in the beginning of verse 27, when she heard about Jesus. I don't know when she heard about Jesus. I don't know how she heard about Jesus, but somehow she heard about Jesus. And by the way, isn't that really what everybody needs today? Doesn't everybody need to hear about Jesus? Those who are feeling hopeless today, those who are feeling helpless today, those that are finding the despair and the despondency and the depression that seemingly is overshadowing you and is pushing you down and that proverbial knot's about to come untied and you're about to fall into this terrible abyss, this abyss that's beneath you. Is it the name that you need to hear at the moment like that, the name of Jesus? Most certainly it is. She heard about Jesus. You know, this woman is isolated you talk about quarantined? This was a woman who had to live in quarantine, not for a few weeks, not even for a year like we've been living. This is a woman who for 12 years has been living in quarantine. I don't know how she heard about Jesus, but she heard about Jesus, which is what everybody needs. It's the reason why we tell people in our community the gospel of Jesus. It's the reason why we have church services on a Sunday morning. 
when the snow is out and the ice is on the roads. And a lot of us have been without power for the last few days. It's the reason why we encourage you to be witnesses of Jesus. It's the reason why we give you a card and put it in your hand to get you to look up and look at people and recognize that they have eternal souls. They're going to spend eternity somewhere. It's the reason why we give you a card and ask you to write down the names of the people. I've got mine written down. The names of the people that you're praying for and you're going to get the gospel to over the course of this year. It's the reason why we spend the money to broadcast Uh, the services of our church. It's why we bring special events in because we want to bring people to hear the name of Jesus. It's why we want you to think about your neighbors and love your neighbors and think about reaching out to your neighbors because they've got to hear the name of Jesus. I don't know how they're going to hear it. About two weeks ago, I got an email sent to the LMBC at lmbc.org email address that I always had put out that goes across the bottom of the screen for people to write to us if they make a decision, if they receive Christ, if they have a prayer request. And a man from England wrote me and said, I listened to your messages about the narrow way and the broad way. I was on the broad way, but now I'm on the narrow way. I trusted Christ as my Savior. I don't know how people are going to hear about the message. Is it going to be through a missionary that we send to the other side of the earth who represents us taking the gospel of Jesus? Or will it be one of us? Will it be some of our young people? Will it be some of our adults who say, I'm willing, Lord, send me? I don't know how this woman heard about Jesus, but this woman desperately needed to hear about Jesus. And what she heard about Jesus must have been that Jesus had power to do for her what nobody else had power to do. I can't help but think if maybe she had heard the story that's found back in uh, the third chapter about the man with a withered hand. Jesus comes to a man who has a withered hand, and it's deformed. And Jesus speaks to him, and he says, stretch out your hand, and suddenly his hand becomes normal. He has a full arm and a full hand, and that deformity is instantaneously healed. It's instantaneously taken away. I can't help but wonder if maybe she heard about the story that's found in Mark chapter 4, where Jesus is out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, and a storm blows in, and the wind, and the waves, and it's rocking the boat, and the boat's filling with water, and they think they're going to die. You know where Jesus is? Jesus is in the back of the boat with his head on a pillow, and he's sound asleep. And they go, and they wake up Jesus, and they say, Jesus, wake up, wake up. Don't you know we're going to die? Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. I told you we were going to the other side. It's going to be okay. And he walks to the bow of the boat, and he speaks to the wind and the waves, and suddenly everything lays down, and everything goes calm. I don't know if that was was the story, or maybe it was the story that is found here in the opening chapter of chapter 5, where the demoniac was delivered by the power of Jesus Christ. Because after all, Jesus has power, what, over the demons and over death and over disease, doesn't he? And maybe she heard the story of the demoniac that had been set free. I don't know what story it is she heard. I don't know who it is that brought her the story. But she recognized that her last hope, her final hope, was Jesus. Can I just tell you today, your final hope is Jesus. 
You can look everywhere else and you can do everything else looking for the answers to life's problems. But if you look past Jesus and you go without Jesus and you don't hear about Jesus and you don't turn to Jesus, the reality is you will miss out on the greatest resolution there is. Her final hope. That brings her, us to her fearful pursuit. From her futile search to her final hope to her fearful pursuit, she hears about Jesus, but what's she going to do about it? I mean, after all, she's unclean. You realize what this means? It means that if she touches anyone, they instantaneously become unclean for having touched her. So what is this woman going to do? How is she going to handle this? Notice, if you will, second part of verse 27, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd. Notice it's a crowd. Back in verse 24, they thronged him. In verse 27, it's called the crowd and touched his garment. One, one of the gospel writers says the hem of his garment, probably one of the four tassels that was traditionally worn as a reminder of the covenant of God with the people of Israel, touched one of those tassels, just the hem of his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. I want you to notice carefully, verse 27 and 28, notice these words, she heard, she came, the pronoun isn't here, but it's implied. She touched. Do you see it? She touched. And then it says, verse 28, she said. And when you get to verse 29, it's going to tell you she felt. She heard. She came. She touched. She said. She felt. This woman, knowing that Jesus is her last hope, gets out of her isolation, gets away from being ostracized by the people and comes from behind in this crowd. I have to imagine that she probably stooped down. She didn't want to be recognized. If anybody knew her, if anybody had any knowledge of her, they would have instantaneously begun crying out that an unclean woman was in their midst. They couldn't be defiled by this unclean woman. She must have scoot, she must have. Uh, bent down low, and she must have made her way toward Jesus from behind him. Why from behind him? She didn't know what response the crowd would give to her. She didn't know how they would react to her if somebody recognized her. And furthermore, she didn't know how Jesus would react. But in her heart of hearts, she knew that Jesus was the answer. I, I love what it says in, in, in verse 28. Notice where it says, For she said... The Greek verb is in a tense that means she kept on saying, if only I may touch his clothes, I'll be made well. If only I may touch his clothes, I'll be made well. If only I may touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Can you see her? She leaves her house and she says, if only I can touch his clothes, I'll be made well. She gets closer and closer to the crowd. She's saying it over and over again. If only I can touch his clothes, I'll be made well. She gets up close to the crowd and she's saying it again and again. If only I may touch his clothes, I'll be made well. If only I may touch his clothes, I may be well. If only I can touch his clothes. And she pushes her way through the crowd, hoping nobody will see her. Nobody will recognize her. She's unnamed after all. Most people don't know who she is. She's been isolated for 12 years. If only.
only I may touch his clothes. Can I just tell you something today? I don't know what your situation in life is, but if only you can touch the hem of his garment. Do you know what she was expressing in these moments? She was expressing faith in Jesus Christ. And I love the, what she's doing here. She, she, was, she was reaffirming her faith over and over and over again. You ever have to do that for yourself? Are y'all with me? Y'all with me? You ever have to do that for yourself? You have to sometimes say, if, if only I can touch the hem of his garment. If only I can touch the hem of his garment. And you say it over and over. You repeat the promises of God over and over and over again. And you keep saying them again and again and again. And what you're doing is you're reaffirming your own faith. And this woman was reaffirming her faith. I know that if Jesus has done it for others, Jesus can do it for me. Her fearful pursuit, that brings us to her freedom realized. In verse 29, it says, immediately. Can we just stop there for a moment? That word immediately is so important. It's found 40 times in the gospel of, of Mark. Did you know in the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that word is only found 63 times? It's found 63 times, and 40 of the 63 times are in the Gospel of Mark. You ever stop to wonder? You know, in your Bible, it may say straightway and straightway. It may say, as it is in my New King James Version, immediately, or it may, as, it may something, say something like as soon as or as quickly but it's the translation of the Greek word euthaos. It's the idea of the immediacy of it. And you say, what is the significance of something like that? Forty times the gospel writer Mark uses that word. Well, for one thing, Mark is writing to a Roman audience, a Gentile audience. And one of the virtues that they admired as a Gentile Roman audience was a person of action. And Mark uses it over and over to remind the Roman people that Jesus was a person of action. You know, there's a lot of people that just say a lot of things and never get anything done. Anybody here? They'll say a lot of things. I've met a lot of people who tell me I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and they never do anything. Mark wanted to communicate that Jesus was a person of action but there's something else about this word immediately. It's the idea that Jesus is on a mission. Jesus has a purpose. There's a meaning to what he's doing. He's not just like a, a, a pool table cue ball just bouncing off the walls, going wherever he's sent. Jesus is moving toward a mission. He's got a purpose here. Immediately, it says, immediately. The fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. By the way, are you still with me? You see the word affliction? You find it again down in verse 34, that the word affliction comes from a word that means a whip or a scourge. The verb form of it means to flog 
What, how, how had this woman's illness affected her? It was like being whipped every day of her life. About, it was like being scourged. It was like being flogged every day of her life. That's how desperate her circumstances were. But this woman heard. She heard and she came and she touched and she kept saying. And when she touched Jesus, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up. Let me just remind you of something. Jesus has all the power you need. Jesus has all the power that we need. Jesus is the all-powerful one. And I love when it says she felt in her body that she was healed. Gnosko, she felt it. She immediately knew that she was made well. When I was... uh, going through a period in my life of difficulty, my mother wrote me a, a little note, and this is what it said. Davy, you can't call me that. <laughs> Davy, when the Lord touches you in some way, you know it. And then she signed it, Love Mother. My life group had that little saying that came out of a letter she wrote to me. And they had that little saying put into a paperweight, a glass paperweight, and it sits on my desk. And every once in a while, I stop and I read it. And this week, I stopped and I read it as I was thinking about this woman. When the Lord touches you in some way, you know it. It's, the reality is that while this woman was the one touching Jesus, Jesus was really the one touching this woman, and she knew it. She knew it. She felt it in her body. And notice, verse 30. Her freedom is realized, notice verse 30, and Jesus immediately knowing in himself. You know, Jesus, just like she immediately felt it, Jesus immediately knew it. Do you realize that that Jesus knows everything? He's the omniscient one. He knew this woman was coming before she came. He knew who the woman was, though he's going to turn around in a moment and ask to see her. He knew all there was to know about this woman. Immediately, Jesus knows that power has gone out. And now we see her freedom realized. That brings us to her faithful confession. Verse 30, and Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now, we know the disciples are not real sharp sometimes. By the way, neither are we. At least neither am I. Maybe you're always sharp. I'm not very sharp sometimes. It's pretty dull. But I want you to notice what his disciples say to him. But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging. We've gone from the multitude in verse 24 that thronged him to the crowd in verse 27 that she had to press through to get to Jesus down to these words where it says in verse 31, the multitude thronging. And then you say, his disciples respond, you say, who touched me? The disciples say, what do you mean, who touched you? All these people have been bumping up against you. We've all been moving in this crowd of people everywhere we go. They're all trying to reach out and touch you. What do you mean? Hey, there's a difference. Did you know that faith has fingers? This woman wasn't touching him in the way others were touching him. On this day, this woman touched him by what? 
She she touched him by faith. She touched him by faith. It must not have been happening with the others that were around him. She touched him by faith. And instantaneously, she was made well. And Jesus instantaneously knows that power has gone out of him. And he turns and he says, who touched me? And the disciples say, are you crazy? And I'm paraphrasing. I doubt they said that. But that's probably what they were thinking, whether they said it or not. Are you crazy? Look at all these people. Have you ever seen one of the old British Open tournaments? Okay. coming up the 18th hole the champions just hit his last shot he's about to walk to the green and make the putt and win the tournament and they let the crowd of people run toward him and they gather around him and you see the police trying to keep people away from him and then suddenly they have a line where they can go no further suddenly that player emerges out of that crowd that's what it was like there was such a crowd You couldn't even see Jesus in the crowd. If you were very far deep in the crowd, several people back, you couldn't even see Jesus. He's in there. I see him in there. This woman pressed through. She touched him by faith because faith has fingers. She reached out and she touched him by faith and instantaneously she was healed and instantaneously he knows that the power has gone out of him, that somebody has touched him differently. Somebody has touched him by faith and this woman is instantly healed and Jesus said, who touched me? But now here's where it gets really beautiful and I'm not going to get through this whole message. Here's where it gets really beautiful. I want you to notice her faithful confession. But in her faithful confession, I want you to notice how compassionate is our Jesus. Will you notice it? Verse 32. And he looked around. Here's the first thing. To see her who had done this thing. I don't know if you know what it means for somebody to see you. We live in a world where we don't see people. We don't lift up our eyes and look. We're not paying attention to the people around us. We're not noticing the spiritual condition of those that God has placed as our mission field all around us. We don't notice people that are hurting. Somebody can be out of power just a few doors up from us, and we have no sense of knowledge of what's going on anywhere. We pull into our driveway and put our car in our garage, and we pull up the bridge over the moat, and we don't want to be bothered by anybody, or we won't bother anybody. And people are living in their houses and people are in crowds of people and they're wondering, does anybody see me? Does anybody see me? I mean, after all, what are you to the government? You're a social security number. That's what you are. What are you to the IRS? You're you're a number at the end of the year of what tax number, what what your tax number is and what your tax debt is, what you've got to pay. You're a number. When you go to a business, you can hardly find somebody to even answer the phone. You have to go through multiple 
pressing of the buttons in order to find some way to get the help that you need. I mean, you're just a number. But this this woman was not a number to Jesus. By the way, you're not a number to Jesus either. Did you know he calls his own, how? By name. Did you know he counts the hairs that are on your head? Now, for some of you, that's not going to be too much of a deal. Not, not a big deal. Some of you, he gets, maybe, maybe he gets, and I say this without any sacrilegion here, I, gets a little confused because they weren't the same color as they were the last time he counted. He sees the sparrow that falls. He says, I want to see her. He could have just kept moving, couldn't he? Couldn't he? He could have just said, look at this crowd of people. This little girl's about to die. We've got to get to this little girl before she dies. I mean, after all, Jairus, could you imagine how Jairus is thinking? Because this stops the progression of the movement of the crowd. This woman pressing into that day to touch his, the hem of his garment, it stops the crowd from moving. Jairus must have been thinking in his heart, no, Jesus, we can't stop. This is my 12-year-old girl. we got to get there. Jesus, don't stop, don't stop. But Jesus stops. And Jesus sees her. I want to say something to you today. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know how hard your life may be. I don't know how hopeless or helpless you may feel, but I want you to know that Jesus sees you. There's something else about Jesus here. I want you to see it. Verse 33. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him. By the way, that's the greatest way to worship, isn't it? It's the greatest way to worship, isn't it? Will you go back to chapter 5, verse 2? When the demoniac comes out, Excuse me, verse 6, when the demoniac comes out and he's set free, listen to verse 6, when he saw Jesus from afar, what does he do? He runs and worships him. What does it mean to worship? You fall down before him. What about Jairus? When, when Jairus comes to meet Jesus in verse 22, will you notice what it says? And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And what does this woman do? This woman came and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You know what this says to me? This says to me that Jesus was willing to listen and sympathize. He not only saw her, he sympathized with her. You know, when somebody comes to you and starts telling you what's going on, you say, okay, 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 okay. You're not sympathizing. To sympathize means that you enter into their problems. You enter into their, pro- their, their troubles. You enter into what's, ha- what's hurting them and harming them at that moment. You stop and you listen and you pay attention and you try to feel what they're feeling at that moment. And Jesus saw her and then Jesus sympathized with her. And I can't help but think of Hebrews chapter 4. For we have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He sympathized with her. But then I want you to see he spoke to her. You know, it's one thing to see somebody. It's another thing to sympathize with them. It's a third thing to speak to them. Notice what he does, verse 34. And he said to her, daughter, 
The only time the word's used by Jesus in reference to an individual. Daughter. Isn't that a beautiful word? He didn't say stranger. He didn't say, hey, you. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Oh, she heard his voice. Remember in the garden after Jesus had been buried and the women were coming back to resurrect, uh, coming back to finish the preparation of the body, not knowing that he'd been resurrected. When they find the tomb empty, some of them run back to tell the disciples. But do you remember Mary? Mary's crying. She's crying. What have they done with his body? What have they done with his body? What have they done with his body? There's somebody who speaks to her. She doesn't immediately recognize. She thinks it's the gardener who's taking care of the garden there around the tomb. But then what does Jesus do with that woman? What does he do? What does he do? He calls her by name. And suddenly she knows. This is the resurrected Christ. This is Jesus alive. This is the one who is the Savior. He's alive. Why? Because he called her by name. He saw her. He sympathized with her. He spoke to her. All during her faithful confession. Then he saved her. Look at it. Verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you. You see the word? Well. Sozo. It means more than just physically well. It means spiritually whole. He saved her. All for a touch. Can I just tell you something today? Those of you that are watching, I don't know what you're going through and I don't know what your life is like. I don't know how bad it is. You've sought everywhere else. Don't, don't close your Bible up yet. You've sought everywhere else. You've thought everything else through to try to find an answer for all of your problems. Can I just tell you, the answer is Jesus. It may not be that Jesus is going to give you healing in your body, at least physically by the means that you think of where your body's going to get better and you're going to live in this life. He may give you the ultimate healing, which means to take you to heaven where you never have to be sick again. But I want to tell you something. There's a Jesus, a living Jesus who sees you, who sympathizes with you, who wants to speak to you. And he wants to save you. But it's all with a touch of faith. Maybe there's a crowd of people in front of you and you're wondering, what, what will Jesus think and what will the crowd think? It doesn't matter what the crowd thinks. You press through the crowd. If I can just touch the hem of his garment. If I can just touch the hem of his garment. If I can just touch the hem of his garment. If I can just touch the hem of his garment. I want to tell you, when you reach out to Jesus in faith, not only do you touch Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus touches you. And as my mother says, when the Lord touches you in some way, you know it. You know it.